Well, welcome to the book of Malachi. I just want to poll the audience real quick. How many of you have ever sat through a series, a preaching series, through the book of Malachi? Okay, there are six people, seven, eight. All right, a few of you. That's fantastic. So here we are. We just finished the Gospel of Luke, and now we're going to bounce over to the Old Testament. Some people wonder, like, why would you go to an Old Testament book like Malachi? Well, because Paul said all scripture is given by inspiration of God, and it's profitable. This is a treasurable book, and I hope that over the next number of weeks, you will fall in love with the book of Malachi. Do you know what Malachi is about? It's about a good God who comes to bad people and shows them love. A good God comes to bad people and surprisingly shows them love. I don't know about you. I I don't know if you've ever had one of those non-stellar days. Have you ever had one of those? And then instead of someone treating you like you deserve, they actually treat you with love. It's kind of hard to handle. It's hard to handle being a bad person and being treated lovingly. But that's precisely what unfolds in this book. Alan Alberg captured the difficulty in a short poem. The poem went like this. I did a bad thing once. I took this money from my mother's purse for bubblegum. What made it worse? She bought me some for being good. Well, I'd been vice versa, so to speak. That made it worser. He was bad, but he was treated with love. And that was a little bit difficult to handle. What we're going to discover in the book of Malachi is that God loves sinners. It's incredible, and it's humbling. Let's look at our text this morning. Malachi chapter 1 verses one through five, I'd like to read it. And when I finish, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. And you can respond, thanks be to God. Malachi chapter one, beginning in verse one. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to the jackals of the desert. Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins. The Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down. They will be called the wicked country, the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together and then look into this text. Father, we ask that you would open our eyes 
to behold wondrous things out of your law. We pray this morning that you would show us your deep love. Help us as sinners to receive it and then help us to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength in return. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. The truth is we know almost nothing about the prophet Malachi except for his name, which means my messenger. There are clues, however, within the book that we can piece together to give us some sort of a frame of reference. For instance, there's mention of the Jerusalem temple, an active priesthood. You see that in chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. There's this Persian loan word for governor, someone who's presiding over the people, but it's a Persian word, and it's in chapter 1, verse 8. There's the historical destruction of Edom that's alluded to in chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. And so we take these internal markers and we're able to place the book at least in the post-exilic period, so after exile. It's the period most likely around the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, so 460 to 400 BC, somewhere in there. So I want you to think about your biblical chronology for just a minute. You've got Daniel, and then Haggai, Zechariah, once the people begin to return. There's the account of Esther. Then there's Ezra, Nehemiah, and Malachi. Most likely, Malachi was prophesying during the time of of Ezra and Nehemiah, during that era when the temple had been rebuilt, the walls were being reconstructed, and life was going in Israel again. Now, Malachi was called by God to speak to the Jews in Jerusalem following their return from 70 years of Babylonian captivity. They'd been in the land, so they'd returned, they'd kind of settled, almost a century had passed. So by the time we get to Malachi, think, Almost a hundred years had gone on since they returned from Babylon. They'd been in the land for some amount of time. They'd rebuilt the temple in the city. But things were not as glorious as they once had been. It was the difference between fresh cut stones and recycled rocks. You could think of a time in Israel's history where they had all of this import of these fresh slabs of granite or all of this import of these great cedars of Lebanon. But this era right here, when Malachi is speaking, they were trying to find stones that weren't chipped or broken. They were trying to find timbers that weren't all burned up. And they were piecing things together. Life was drab, and make do. Things were partial and pieced together, and the attitude of the people reflected that. Maybe you could say that the vibe had shifted. When they first were allowed to return, you can imagine there was initial excitement. People are whispering, it's going to be great. But now, you have this half-hearted reluctance. People are like, do we really have to? 
when it came to the worshiping of God. Now the celebrated prophecies, there there had been a number of prophecies. They were looking forward to things like regathering and rebuilding. But those prophecies seemed to fall short of everyone's expectations. Where was the miraculous fruitfulness that Ezekiel predicted in Ezekiel 34? Wasn't the population supposed to swell and spread abroad like Isaiah said in Isaiah 54? Remember he said, enlarge your tents. The barren is going to be fruitful. It's going to be amazing. But it sure didn't look amazing. Where was the glorious reign of this new David? Like Jeremiah foretold in Jeremiah 23. What about how all the nations were supposed to come and serve Israel? That's what Isaiah says in Isaiah 49. But it seemed like the plight of Israel was just the opposite. At the time of Malachi, the land languished because of frequent droughts. Chapter 3, verse 10. The population was only a fraction of what it had been. And instead of the nations coming to serve Israel, Israel was still under the thumb of Persia. Chapter 1, verse 8. Life was lackluster. It was difficult. Things were far less and far worse than anyone had expected. Inward devotion to God was failing. People were discouraged. Skepticism was on the rise. You could even say they were cynical about serving God. That was the prevailing mood in Israel when Malachi comes on the scene. So into that environment, I mean, think November drizzle, cold, cloudy hearts. Into that environment, God declares his love. And that's what's so shocking about the opening of the book of Malachi. God doesn't start by addressing their sin. Instead, he begins by declaring his love. Notice verses 1 and 2 again. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. Perfect tense of the Hebrew verb for love there indicates that God has and he continues to love his people. In other words, God's love for his people is still operative despite all of the suffering and and all of the disappointment that they were experiencing. God's, you can put it this way, God's love is real despite how you feel. I mean, that's one you should think about tomorrow morning when you don't want to get up. It's kind of cloudy and dark. It's like 40-something degrees. No, God's love is real regardless of how you feel feel. God loves his people. And it's not because necessity is laid upon him. That's not why he loves. God's under no obligation to love anyone. It's not because of some meritorious condition that's been met. So, oh, you've been really good today. Oh, you're so lovable. I'm going to love you today. No, it's not because some meritorious condition has been met. The people of Israel, listen, they were anything but worthy. I mean, I just think all this striving to be worthy 
is a misunderstanding of God's nature. His love is not a merit badge. There was no good beauty or desirability in Israel, and yet this passage opens up, I have loved you, says the Lord. This love is not an amorphous love. You know, some people talk about this sentimentality that floats around like a penumbra. Oh, love's out there somewhere. No, it's not like that. God's love is very personal. He says, I have loved you. It's very personal. Friends, God's love is sovereign. He loves because he wills to love. It's unconditional. He loves because of what he's like, not because of what we are like. God's love is personal. He loves us. Just listen to his words through scripture. This is what the people of Israel should have done. They should have reflected back on how God had already communicated his love. They should have remembered his word that he had given earlier. Passages like Jeremiah 31.3. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. They should have remembered passages like Lamentation chapter 3, verses 22 and 23. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning Great is your faithfulness. Or how about the echo that rings 26 different times in Psalm 136 alone? If you're struggling with whether or not God loves you, go to Psalm 136. You're like, I don't know, it's a lot of verses. It says the same thing 26 times. The exact same phrase, like, it's like knocking on your heart in case you didn't get it the first time or the second time or the third time or the 25th time, I'll say it again. His steadfast love endures forever. So the opening of this text is how God declares his love. But sadly, what we're going to discover is that the Israelites, like us, struggle doubting God's love. So God declares his love, but sometimes people doubt God's love. Can you imagine what it would be like to be a parent who turns to your child and says, I love you, only to have that child retort in anger, How have you ever loved me? Can you imagine the pain of that? Can you imagine the pain of a spouse trying to express their deep affection, saying, honey, I really love you, only to have them say, yeah, right, and walk away? That's what's going on in this text. God's people doubt his love. He says, I have loved you, but it falls on deaf ears. The people of Israel in Malachi's day, for them, there was like this hidden sense of neglect. They had this underlying bitterness. They thought God had treated them unfairly. 
God was absent. God had somehow let them down. Their logic went something like this. If God doesn't care, why should we? Have you ever gotten to a place in difficult circumstances in your life where you've really struggled accepting God's love? Or even believing it? Like, I, I know 26 times in the psalm it says the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever, but that does not awaken my dull heart. I am hurting, or I am angry, or I feel left all alone. Or if he was so loving, how could he leave me here like this? If he was so loving, how could he take that away? If he was so loving, why do I have this condition? God's not loving. God doesn't care. And if God doesn't care, why should I? That's where these people had gotten to. They had been nursing an attitude of resentment towards God. They'd been questioning his goodness. They were living as though their wants were of central importance. They were curved in on themselves, as Luther puts it. But when I think about this, I just think about my own heart. Like, I want to be hard on Israel. Like, oh, look at this. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? And as much as I want to kind of rebuke Israel, I have to look in the mirror at the times I've wondered about the goodness of God. Or the times I've struggled with the way his love is intersecting my life. When times are hard, it's difficult to believe that God loves us. If you've experienced some sort of a tragedy, or you've had long-term unanswered prayer, or if you're in these lonely moments of life, you can suddenly feel selfish and snarky and sarcastic. If God really loves us, why doesn't he show it more? If he's so good, why is life so hard? The fact is, we might even get upset at the suggestion that God loves us. What good are vacuous words? How is sentimentality going to balm my heart right now? How are these whispers of affection going to relieve my suffering? Talk is cheap. And sometimes we wouldn't put it in those words, but we feel something like that. Haven't you ever felt the dissonance between what the Bible says about God's love and the present difficulty that you're experiencing in life? Haven't you ever mistakenly interpreted God through the lens of your trial instead of interpreting your trial through the lens of God's character? Do you say things like, God is good, so he must be at work in this difficulty. Is that what you, you tend to say? God is good, so he must be at work in my singleness or my financial trouble or my illness or my job situation. God is good, so he must be at work in this difficulty. Or do you say, this difficulty is unbearable. God obviously doesn't care. I wonder if he's even good. Do you see the difference between those two approaches? 
Do you see how easily doubts and double-mindedness about God's character can creep into our lives? Well, the people of Israel in Malachi's day struggle with the whole concept of God's love. They were contrary people. I mean, I think that's how you could put it. They, they argued with God. If you've read the book of Malachi, maybe even in preparation for this series, you decided, I'm going to tackle the long book of Malachi. All four chapters. It's going to be a great endeavor. And maybe you did that, and if you did, you discovered that the whole book is framed around arguments with God. These people were in disputes with the Lord. The structure revolves around these quarrels. For instance, in Malachi chapter 1, verse 6, you priests despise my name, but you say, how have we despised your name? by offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? Or Malachi chapter two, verse 17. You've wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? Or Malachi chapter three, verse eight. Will man rob God, yet you are robbing me? But you say, how have we robbed you? Or Malachi chapter three, verse 13. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord, but you say, how have we spoken against you? You see, the whole thing is this, this argument. I get this picture of a teenage boy who's told to clean his room. After some time, he comes out and plans to slip out of the house, go to a high school football game. But before he leaves, his dad said, just a minute. We're gonna take a peek at that room. Oh, dad. After peering into the disaster, the father says, now, I told you to clean your room. The teen retorts, what do you mean by clean? Well, I expect to see the floor, not all this junk. What are you calling junk? Well, your clothes are all over the place. I don't see them on the ceiling. Okay, we've got to stop this banter. But this is how Israel is towards God. It's a disputation. And the trend starts in our text this morning. Their first argument with God concerns love. Verse number two, God says, I have loved you. But you say, how have you loved us? God declares his love, number one. But so often his people Number two, they doubt it. So what does God do? He patiently brings proofs to bear. He, he justifies his claims. You could put it this way. God goes to great lengths to demonstrate his love. So God declares it. People doubt it. So he demonstrates it. Since suffering people can be so easily blinded to God's love, since trials can so easily eclipse God's goodness, the Lord graciously gives us evidence of his love. There are three demonstrations of his love that I want to show you in this text. Notice first how God demonstrates his love through election. Verses two and three. Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. Here, 
God's decision to choose one of Isaac and Rebekah's sons and not choose the other, he's saying, that was a demonstration of my love. God's decision to choose Jacob, who's renamed Israel, God's decision to choose Israel and not Esau, later his descendants, Edom, that was a demonstration of God's love. Here's how the argument would go. Israel, you're questioning my love for you, but let's pause for a second and think this through. Verse number two. Is not Esau Jacob's brother? To which they respond, well, yes, they were brothers. They were actually twin brothers. You can read about them in Genesis 25. Then God says, well, then remember, I placed my love, my preference on Jacob and not Esau. I chose Israel, and I didn't choose Edom. He received no preference. He was hated, as a matter of fact. Now, in this discussion of election, I think we should take a moment and consider the phrase in verses two and three that says, I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I think that's the most difficult phrase in our text this morning. At first glance, this could concern people. How could God, I mean, just, I hope you're awake enough to be concerned. How could God love some people and hate others? I mean, that doesn't sound very fair. What's going on here? Well, let's review a few facts. First, God didn't look at Jacob and make a meritorious decision. He didn't look at Jacob and make a merit-based selection. In other words, God didn't look down through the corridors of time and discover that Jacob, oh, he's going to be a good egg. I'm going to pick him. No, that's not how it worked. Actually, in my opinion, and, and maybe you share this, I mean, there are descriptions of Jacob that make him seem like a worse scoundrel than his brother Esau. He was known for swindling, lying, deceiving. Jacob wasn't a good person. So we need to conclude that election is unconditional. It's not merit-based. Genesis chapter 25 Verses 22 and 23 actually explain that God made his choice of Jacob before he was born. While the two twins were still in their mother's womb, he made his choice. It wasn't based on their life performance. Here's the second thing I'd like to point out about God's election here. And that is that the words for love and hate, commonly used in English, may not communicate the full range of the semantic Hebrew here. What do I mean by that? Well, I want to give you a few references to help you understand this love-hate complex word meaning. They were used in Genesis chapter 29. The same two words are used in Genesis chapter 29 to describe Jacob's strong love or Jacob's preference for his wife, Rachel. 
as opposed to his lacking love, scorn, or diminished preference for his wife, Leah. It says that Rachel was a beautiful woman. Leah had soft eyes. I don't know what that means. Even in the Hebrew, I don't know what it means. But he had preference for Rachel, not for Leah. Do you remember how the whole event played out? I mean, there were some family system struggles here. Jacob goes to Laban's house. Laban was a relative. He works for him for seven years so that he can marry this woman named Rachel who he deeply loves. Laban says, sure, after seven years of hard labor, I'll let you marry my daughter, Rachel. Seven years pass. It's the wedding night. Jacob goes into his tent New wife, new life. It's going to be amazing. Except he wakes up the next morning to discover that Laban had done a switcheroo. Laban gave him his daughter Leah instead of Rachel. And he woke up and realized he married the wrong girl. Another seven years of labor would be required. He'd have to work for Laban another seven years until he could marry Laban's daughter, Rachel, the one he wanted in the first place. When they're finally married, he has these sort of feelings towards them. He loved more Rachel and loved less Leah. And the text says he hated her. Now, look at how it plays out. This is Genesis 29, verses 30 and 31. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban another seven years. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. So there's an equation here. In this text, he loved Rachel more than Leah means Leah was hated. Do you see that? that doesn't really follow the way we use love and hate sometimes as these extreme poles. Instead, what we see from this text is that loving Rachel more than Leah is called hating Leah. You could read about it again in Deuteronomy 21, verses 15 and 16. The same word pair is used there in inheritance laws. But I think more commonly, we could remember what Jesus said. Jesus said something similar. He used these same two words, the same idea here in Luke 14, 26. If anyone comes to me, this is Jesus, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, naturally, Jesus didn't mean that we should hate our family members in the sense that we use the word hate in English frequently. But rather, he means we should love them less than him. We should prefer them less than him. Matthew 10, 37. That's the way I believe these words, love and hate, are used in our text here in Malachi chapter one. Now, that may not resolve all of your angst, Some of you may still be struggling here. Even if love and hate mean prefer more and prefer less, that still doesn't sound fair. God loves some people more than others, really? Folks, the thing that's difficult here is not so much that God loves some people in a special electing way, 
but rather that God loves any people in that way. That's what's really difficult to understand. It shouldn't be so shocking to us that God loved Jacob over Esau. What should be shocking to us is that he loved either of them. If fairness is the issue, none of us deserve God's love. The fifth century church father named Augustine put it this way. By giving to some what they do not deserve, he has willed that his grace should be gratuitous and thus genuine grace. By not giving to all, he has shown what all deserve. In other words, God gives some more than they deserve. That's grace. But no one gets less than they deserve. That's justice. Listen to how the Apostle Paul explains our Malachi text. In the book of Romans, Paul will grab from Malachi chapter 1 and quote this very phrase. This is how Paul puts it. Romans chapter 9, beginning in verse 10. When Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our father Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So maybe we could rephrase our text this morning this way to help us understand. Remember, God is trying to give evidence of his love for Israel. And he's doing it through this theological truth of election. Maybe we could think about it this way. God looking at the people saying, I chose your ancestor Jacob to bless him and show him mercy while Esau and his descendants, I passed by. In comparison to my favor towards you, you could say that I hated Esau. Don't you see I really do love you. My friends, you may be suffering through some sort of a trial in life right now. Things may not be turning out the way you hoped or expected, but don't doubt God's love for you. If you're a believer this morning, he chose you to be his child. He opened your heart to receive the gospel and be saved. God demonstrated his love through election. That's one way he does it. But notice in our text, Malachi goes on and he shows us that God demonstrates his love also through protection. You see it in verses three and four. So not only election, but also through protection, verses three and four. I have laid waste his, meaning Edom's, hill country. I left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down. 
They will be called the wicked country, the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Maybe you're reading that and you're thinking, wait, 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 Lucas. I thought that hated means passed by or preferred less. So why are the descendants of Esau being shattered and torn down? Why are the Edomites the object of the Lord's anger? Why are they going to be called the wicked country? Well, you have to know the history of Esau. Esau and his lineage, the picture isn't pretty. Esau grew up to despise his birthright, Genesis 25, 34. He married two pagan Hittite women and an Ishmaelite woman, making life intolerable for Isaac and Rebekah. You can read about that in Genesis 26, 34. His descendants continually fought against Israel and they pursued Israel without pity. This is what it says in Ezekiel 35.5. The Edomites cherished perpetual enmity and gave over the people of Israel to the power of the sword at the time of their calamity. Edom later rejoiced in Israel's destruction. It says in Obadiah 12, they gloated in the day of Israel's misfortune, in the day of their ruin. Esau's descendants actually cheered when Jerusalem was being torn down stone by stone. This is what it says in Psalm 137.7. They cheered saying, lay it bare, lay it bare down to its foundations. They cheered while the people of their brothers were being destroyed. This would be like celebrating the assault or the abuse of a family member. That's how the Edomites treated the Israelites. They were perverse in their joy because they gloried in Israel's suffering. And finally, God said, that's enough. He simultaneously protected his people Israel while punishing the people Edom. The Babylonians, this is in in the 500s BC, the Babylonians sacked both Israel and Edom but only Israel was sent back to rebuild, Ezra chapter one. The remnant of Edom, they may have tried to revive to their former greatness, but God promised, I will thwart their efforts. Notice verse number four, they may build, but I will tear them down. What happens to the Edomites? Well, eventually they're overthrown by the Nabataeans and become an extinct people. As an identifiable people group, they're extinct forever. So what is God saying to Israel? He's saying, Israel, I love you. And the proof of it is that I chose you and I've protected you. Look how I brought you back to the land of promise. This is the holy land. Whereas the land of Edom, that's the wicked country. You are the objects of my loving protection. Whereas the Edomites are the people with whom I am angry forever. Folks, can you see it? God demonstrates his love through election, through protection, and finally, God demonstrates his love through what I call extension. In other words, God's love is for Israel, but it's not just for Israel. And we see that in verse number five. 
Look at the last verse of our text this morning. Your own eyes shall see this. Namely, God's work of election and protection. Your own eyes shall see this. And you shall, you'll ultimately say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. What is God saying here? Well, one day, Israel, you will see my love. You will acknowledge my good work and my gracious heart. And you will realize that it goes out even beyond the borders of Israel. You may not be ready yet to see this, but one day you will realize, this is in verse number 11. This is Malachi chapter one, verse 11. One day you will realize that from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. My love will extend to people from every kindred, tribe, tongue, and nation. And how would that happen? Well, one day, a descendant of Jacob, a descendant of Israel, named Jesus would come. And through him, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Friend, just, just think about where you are right now. God has declared his love for you. And even if you feel a measure of doubt about that, look at how he's demonstrated it to you. God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were still sinners, finish it with me, Christ died for us. Won't you receive his love? Won't you return to his love today? As you close your Bibles and quiet your hearts, I want to tell you about a couple who adopted a boy from Ethiopia. After a long period of paperwork and international travel, their son was finally able to come to his forever home. This adoptive couple, they, they had such big hearts of love. They had almost inexplicable affection for this child. But sadly, the boy struggled giving and receiving love. He was retracted and, and guarded and reserved. And this adopted child had a hard time folding into the new family. But this young couple didn't give up. They, they knew that the boy's suspicion toward their love reflected more his broken past than their present attempts at showing affection. And so they just kept on loving. My friends, I think that's what God is doing for us. We're like that adopted child. We may be hurting or withdrawn, even cynical toward the Lord because the trials that we're enduring or the difficulties that we're navigating have closed us in. But God doesn't give up. He loves you whether you feel it or not. You say, the only thing I feel is loneliness. The only thing I feel is depression. I feel distant. I feel forgotten. My friend, if that's you this morning, then listen to what God has said. I love you. And look at what God has done. He's elected, protected, and extended his love. Our only appropriate response this morning is to love him back 
with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Let's pray that that would be true of each of us this morning. Lord, across this room, I imagine that there are people who are struggling with your love. Perhaps they've been hurt deeply or maybe they've struggled for a long time. Maybe they've faced disappointments or expectations have been dashed and they feel retracted, guarded, reserved. Lord, I just pray that your deep love would awaken our dull senses and that you would help us to love you. We can love you because you first loved us. And so this morning we give you thanks for your great love. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.